Hi there. Welcome to the Uncensored Wizard podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about backsliding and some churches' war on deconstruction. I just wanted to say before we begin this episode that I realize I speak in generalities concerning the church, and I am largely talking about the evangelical church and particularly about the Pentecostal church since that is where I come from and is my experience. I've been attending church from time to time over the past few months, and I realize that there are local churches that are not like the churches that I talk about in this podcast. However, I stand by what I say because in general, this is true in the institutions that call themselves church, and it is largely the perception of those who are out of the church or who have left the church. I hope you enjoy this episode. Back in April of this year, Pete Enns tweeted, In my experience, people do not so much deconstruct from Christianity, but from certain forms of Christianity that claim to be the only Christianity. Around the time that I started sharing the unraveling of my faith on this podcast, um, Christian band Skillet, their lead singer John Cooper, made a statement at a concert and uh, said that it is time to declare war against the deconstruction movement. His message resonated with a lot of pastors, and I started seeing more and more uh, pastors speak out against deconstruction and sort of paint it as, as if it was this great falling away. I mentioned how this made me feel in one of my first podcasts about my own unraveling of faith. It felt like, at the time, that the church just couldn't stay in its lane for a minute. When thousands, like me, were leaving the church, instead of asking questions about the theology they were producing that was pushing us away, they instead made us the target of their newest campaign of evangelism. Also, I think, the target of our ire. Uh, At any rate, it really rubbed me the wrong way, because... Not just because of the church's short-sightedness in the matter, but also because it was just a gross misunderstanding of what was actually happening in my life, like the actual experience that I was having. And it also implied some things that just weren't true. For instance, I'd never walked away from my belief in God. Some, some people did. I did not. Uh, nor did I ever write Jesus off. Um, or feel like I would never follow his teachings, or uh, or that um, you know that I wouldn't ever want to return to studying them, or or really diving into them more. It was it was just put on the shelf for a minute. What I did struggle with, though, were beliefs about God and Jesus that the church held and expected me to hold, which I could no longer honestly say that I believed, <clears throat> and. Um, and on top of that, (laughs) the whole political era of the time, I struggled to make it fit. The people that had raised me to love God and love others, it just, they become in in my eyes, very different people, uh, in, in the most recent political seasons. 
And so I just, I started to feel some kind of way about how the church acted towards its own and towards others and the political stuff. And this is not just one side of the spectrum on the right and the left. I just, I struggled with the shallow faux spirituality of the church. Uh, I needed something and, and I know it's like all these years I preached and I would get so frustrated when people would tell me they're leaving the church because they're not getting fed. <laughs> and I hate, I hate putting it in those kind of terms, but I needed something that the church no longer provided for me. Uh, and in fact, the church was taking away um, from my opportunity to really explore what I needed to explore on my own. So I, I didn't need the church at that time. I needed the wilderness. You know, there's something to be said about the Spirit driving you into the wilderness. We see this happening to Jesus after his baptism. Um, the wilderness is, is sometimes a very necessary experience. And what I needed was in the wilderness. It was imperative for my own mental, physical, and spiritual health that I leave and sort things out. Just me, myself, and I, and God... <laughs> Um, and so, and that's again, why I feel like I had sort of this visceral reaction to the church all of a sudden jumping on Skillet's bandwagon of, of a war against deconstruction when what many were calling deconstruction, I called unraveling was exactly what needed to happen. I mean, not just what needed to happen, what had happened, you know, there was no real turning back from it. I had, I had after years of of um, of searching and growing and learning and my own life experiences changed my mind about things that uh, that I used to believe and just could not honestly stay in that in that situation where it was expected for me to believe those things and promote those things and especially when things got dicey in the world and so in this process of course you know it it any time you take a trip to the wilderness it is an existential crisis so it's accompanied with all of those you know all of those sorts of things and there were times in this wilderness that I have questioned my belief in God um there are times that I've wondered you know if I even considered myself a Christian anymore or if I would ever consider myself a Christian anymore um, I didn't pray a lot for a few years. I wouldn't say I never prayed. I think I did a few times, uh, but it wasn't a practice of mine. I didn't want to hear from God. I didn't want to talk to God. Didn't want to really want to hear about God or talk about God. Uh, I did in my internal self, but just not. I didn't want there to be sort of any external um, uh, inputs. Uh, I did not read the Bible for a few years, um, and I didn't worship, you know, a God or any God or anything for a few years, uh, not in any sort of religious or spiritual sense. But I never stopped doing the, you know, just sort of internally, I never stopped wandering, longing, or looking for God. I mean, I, I just, I'm sort of naturally inclined to do that, and... And it the the impulse was definitely diminished, definitely diminished, but there was never really a situation where um where I, where I felt as if i I wasn't really still leaning into the mystery of God, if that makes sense. So um, in the end, and I'm saying in the end, you know, I feel like it's kind of stages, but I'm, I'm through sort of those initial stages of my unraveling. And now I'm kind of coming to a place of, uh, 
of maybe putting some fibers back together. Very early stages of that, but um, that's kind of what's going on with me. And so now that I've kind of come through the storm and the wilderness of, of, of that faith crisis, you know, I, I'm still a theist. I still believe in God. Um, I remain a Christian and I, I remain Pentecostal. And I, I'd say all that, even though I realize that the gatekeepers of the church uh, or of any religious institution would find reason to gaslight me on all three of those statements, um, because they uh, they would say you are not a Christian based on some of their um, standards, you are not a Pentecostal, um, and some might even claim I'm not a theist. <laughs> but I know what I resonate with, and. I really don't like labels and I really don't like using those identities, but I think it's important uh, when we're talking about newer ideas, not to talk about them as in a vacuum as if they don't exist within the context of, of previous ideas. And so even though my relationship with God and with Christianity and with Pentecostalism uh, is very different than it was at one time, it's not a relationship that does not exist and if I were to categorize myself, I would still put myself more in those categories than I would outside of those categories. So, um, and so, you know, it's like when people talk about deconstruction as being this terrible thing that the church must fight against, um, and, and not fight against in, in, in the way in which it should be fought against, which is looking inward and being introspective and saying, what, what, what role are we playing in pushing or not retaining an entire generation or, you know, an entire movement, if you will, by using their language, of, of deconstructing people? Uh, so, you know, the time, I, I, because they see it that way, I can see why my time away from the church and my time away of ministry might have looked like a falling away. Uh, especially if you refuse to look internally and you're always looking for someone outside to blame, the, the devil, you know, uh, whatever that devil is, um, that spirit when, it, when we can't, when they can't actually define it uh, or, or, or label it. Uh, I could see how if that's if that's your perspective, what you've seen me going through might have looked like a falling away from the ivory tower of the church and through the eyes of its leaders. I get it, <laughs> but it wasn't my experience. It, it felt like a falling into, not a falling away. It felt like a falling into, um, a falling into the abyss of doubts and fears that I was never able to confront in a healthy way. In, in the years of, of life that I spent in the church and in ministry. And, or at least I, I didn't feel like I could. Um, so I fell into, I had to deal with some things. I had some things I had to face, um, some things I had to work through, some things I needed to process. Um, and not just in the, in the realm of beliefs, but just experiences as well. I had started pastoring at a young age. I mean, before I was 40, I've, sat with multiple people as they died. I've, I've walked with families through grief, sometimes multiple at a time. Um, I worked in churches that, um, that I came into to lead out of crises or directly at a crisis, whether it be financial or, or otherwise. 
and just all those things built up and I needed to fall into them a bit and to fully feel them and, and process some of the trauma uh, that I'd experienced years um, in, in ministry and, and, and some of the most impressionable years of my life, my 20s and 30s. So I needed to fall into that. I needed to fall into that abyss. I needed to um, fall back in love with myself and who I am in the image of God. I needed to fall into finding peace with myself and who I was. And so that's what it felt like to me. It felt like a falling in two. And ultimately, I feel like I'm falling into the presence of God. Um, and, 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 I, and I say that in a way that I did not experience as a pastor and a Christian all those years, all those prior years in the church. And it wasn't a pretty process. You know, it's not like in the Pentecostal church, we might liken this to a process of sanctification, but this is, this wasn't, this wasn't clean like sanctification. It was messy. Um, And it, it was a process that the church would not like. And it was a process that was my process. And, and it was what I needed. And I think that's why, to me, the Pete Inns quote that I started with is so important. Because I was raised to believe that the Pentecostal church had a revelation of God that had been disregarded by all of the church since the end of the first century until now. So I was, you know, and this is not just like bad teaching on my local church part. This is part of the early Pentecostal movement. They believed that they were experiencing the outpouring of Acts that had died in the first century of of church. It had existed in various mystical movements and forms throughout history, they would say. But at that moment in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they believed that they were entering the, the age of apocalypse, the end of the world, the end of time. And this was the Spirit being poured out like it was in the book of Acts chapter 2. It's a very central part of Pentecostal theology. And so I was raised to believe that we had a revelation of God that no one else had, I was raised, or other denominations didn't have. I was raised to believe that this revelation came to us because we were called to be people of the last days, and that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit. Uh, this pouring out of His Spirit was equated with the spiritual awakening that, um, that was happening at the time which were emphasized, um, you know, exuberant uh, dancing, uh, laughing, speaking in tongues, rolling in the floor, you know, all these kinds of things. They And I'm not saying those were wrong. If you've never been in one of those services, you don't know how fantastic they actually are. Uh, but uh, this pouring out in, in Scripture was equated with that spiritual awakening and what was happening there. I mean, there was even a time in the history of my denomination, the Church of God, uh, where they sang a hymn in which the refrain was, the Church of God is right, hallelujah to the Lamb. And I mean, we would get really excited when a Baptist or a Methodist Christian came to our church or or experienced spiritual manifestations like, oh my goodness, a Baptist speaking in tongues, a Baptocostal. I mean, it's like, I mean, those things just got us so excited. Uh you know, glossolalia is a term we use for speaking in tongues. And, uh, and so like, you know, I know it was so exciting when I would have a friend come to church. I had this one friend who was Methodist, <clears throat> Wesleyan Methodist, and he came to church and, um, 
and spoke in tongues, experienced glossolalia. And it was like, oh man, it was like the biggest high ever because it was as if they had finally found the truth because we Pentecostals were full gospel, not, not half gospel like all those other churches. We were full gospel. And, uh, and this kind of exclusivism of faith is, is not just a Pentecostal phenomenon. I mean, every mainstream expression of the Christian faith seems to carry with it this feeling of being exclusive and right, or at least kind of this impulse to, to, to feel and act as if they are right and, and through their rightness create a, a culture of exclusivity if you don't believe like us, you're not part of us. And I think it's great to go all go all in on your faith, you know. Like, you know, in some ways, the intention behind that is a good intention. I think if you're going to believe something, believe it all the way. I mean, why not? Um, But but you know, don't get dogmatic about it. Don't get dogmatic, but go in. That's the way it should be. If you want to get the most out of it, then go in on it. You know, the problem is is when you expect everyone else to go all in like you. And to do it just like you, and to believe everything just like you, and to interpret the scriptures just like you, because if you don't, hell awaits. You know, uh, it's just—I it, mean, it's a—it's a scary proposition if you believe that—that um, that hell awaits us if we're not right. I mean, yeah, you want to go and be part uh, and believe that which is right, and be part of people who are right. But in the Pentecostal church. What was worse than never being right about God or never being right with God is being right with God and then changing your mind about what that means. I mean, especially as a Pentecostal. Uh, I mean, how could you experience the full gospel, speaking in tongues and everything, and then leave a full gospel church and go to one of those half gospel churches? We used to use Hebrews chapter 6. Many of you are familiar with the verses 4 through 6 there. We used to use that to describe those people, you know, because people would leave our church and then they would join the Methodist church and we would say, how do they do that? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God. And the, I mean, it's such, this is such a Pentecostal passage, y'all and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. Man, what a trip. And put him to an open shame. I mean, y'all, when you read it that way, when you're told, hey, listen, these people have partaken of the Holy Ghost and the heavenly gift, and they've heard the word of God, word of God, yes, and they still choose to go to this church that isn't full gospel, they're crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting Him to an open shame. I mean, we called that backsliding. Now, of course, backsliding was also smoking cigarettes and cussing after you got saved or any other manner of things like drinking alcohol. And at one time in the Church of God, even drinking coffee and Coke and Coca-Cola was off limits. Um, but we called that backsliding. If you left the Pentecostal church or changed your beliefs about something, especially concerning the Holy Ghost or, you know, salvation, being once saved, always saved, any of that kind of stuff. We called that backsliding. And backsliders, y'all, backsliders went to hell to burn forever when they died because they changed their minds about what they believed. You can't do that. 
It says it right there. Every time you do that, you crucify Jesus again. Um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of what we believed and what we were taught. And since Skillet invited the church to basically join the war on deconstruction, I've heard pastors say things in sermons like, um, I heard this one pastor say, they call it deconstruction now, but we used to call it backsliding. So think about that. Like these people who used to be my family are now saying about me that I am, you know, just destined to be burned by God forever because I changed my mind about some of the things that they believed. <clears throat> and I'll kind of laugh about it now, but it, but when you're going through it, man, the trauma of it, and for those who are going through that, I just want you to know like the trauma of it is super real and it makes you question yourself and it makes you, and, but, but, but that, that's a great opportunity don't be afraid to question, right? And to explore. Um, that's kind of what it's all about. You shouldn't feel shame or guilt over that. So yeah, I, I laugh about it now, but it, the, when, you're, when you're in the throes of that existential crisis part of your unraveling, um, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to see it this way and to, to kind of put it into context. But you know, I, backsliding was a super scary thing. I used to joke about being raised in a church that believe in backsliding, I used to tell people that I grew up in a church that taught backsliding and 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 I practiced it <laughs> because I was constantly getting saved to make sure that I didn't end up in hell uh, or worse, you know, and it would, would be worse to be left um, behind and to experience the tribulation and then still end up burning in hell. So, yeah, I do take issue with uh, beliefs about backsliding because I do not find them to be biblical. And I think they're more tied to a desire uh, for churches and institutions to feel right and exclusive and to make sure that there's a clear way to delineate who's in and who's out, who's going to burn and who has turned, so to speak, and become part of the family of God. Um, so not, But not only do I take issues with backsliding because it's, it's not biblical— I take issue with it because my experience of leaving church did not result in me leaving all my beliefs. Instead, like Pete N said, I I just left some of the beliefs that the church said I had to believe because we were right and everybody else was wrong. Um, so I didn't leave all my beliefs. And I even kept some of those beliefs. But what this did, this process they would call backsliding... It, it gave me space to decide what I actually did believe without being compelled by someone else, without being compelled by fear or the threat of being judged as wrong by those who I was supposed to be in fellowship with, by the constant threat that I might be an outcast or abandoned by thinking differently. It gave me space to actually work through that process on my own. And, and so you might even be wondering that, by now, like why I say that I remain a theist, a Christian, and a Pentecostal. I mean, it seems reasonable that after all these disagreements with the institutions that gatekeep theism, Christianity, and Pentecostalism, I have all the disagreements with them. You would think it would lead me to just no longer identify with, and I'm using air quotes here, those people, uh, but really it's those institutions. Um, and my answer to that question is is the same that it's always been. And that is that I have just seen and experienced too much not to believe. 
uh, and in a broader sense, and I don't mean this to sound like arrogance directed at atheists, um, I, but I just honestly, I've never felt smart enough to definitively declare that there is no God, no way, no how, full stop. I just, there's so much about the world and existence and consciousness that I don't know. How can I make that statement? I just, I don't, I don't, I just have never felt like it was a smart thing to say. I've been quite agnostic and probably still am agnostic, even though I, um, even though I am a religious and spiritual person, I, uh, you know, I, I don't mean it to sound arrogant, but it's just so much I don't know. The things I do know and believe about God and life and all of those transcendental existential questions we have, the things I do know and believe are drawn more from experience than from ancient books or religious doctrines. And that statement right there, when I finally figured that out about myself, helped me out so much. The things I do know and I believe, in other words, I tend to base my reality and my beliefs on my experiences rather than I do ancient books or religious doctrines. Now, that does not mean that I don't take those things serious. I do. I take the Bible very serious. In fact, so serious, I don't think untrained people should be able to teach it. It just there's there's so much there <laughs> that can be used for good, but also for bad. Um, but when it comes to actually deciding on something and really acting on it, I am compelled much more by my lived experience than I am what a bunch of dead people who live before me say about a thing. Now, there is a danger in this. I realize that a couple of dangers. One of the first dangers is that I dismiss the wisdom of my ancestors because that is largely how the how their wisdom is uh has been captured and and handed down okay so I see that there's danger in that however the way it's handed down is through them writing through their experiences right so there's interplay between the experiences and the ancient text But when it comes down to it, if we're honest, especially in the world we live in, there are just some things the ancient text and the religious doctrines weren't prepared for. There are, and this is another confession I just had to come to terms with. Some of those things have reached their limits. I just believe that. I I think they've reached their time limit and they've expired. And so... There are there are antiquated things in the text, the, the the religious text, the Bible, and otherwise, and in religious doctrines. So for me, my own lived experience becomes one of the dominating, well, the dominating filter in which I I'm going to process most of what I know and believe about the world. So so that's one danger. Another danger in in and like I said, I've recognized the dangers in, in this way of, of kind of interpreting the world and beliefs because there's a danger in relying on ancient text. Let me say this first. There's a danger in relying wholly on ancient texts and religious doctrines because they have limits, expiration dates, but also because the dangers 
of us of our understanding either being skewed by our own biases or found lacking as a result of what we do not know. And this is also true for the biblical writers because Scripture is found lacking as a result of what they did not know. But that doesn't mean they didn't know what they did know. So that's why it's important. But for me, I'm, I, I filter much more through an experience than I do those things. Now, this is one reason why I consider myself a Pentecostal still, because early Pentecostals emphasized the experience of God as, as much or more than they did the understanding or doctrine of God. In fact, Pentecostal theology was a later development to the experience. And, <clears throat> of course, it was a th- there was theology that preceded the experience. But what we would call Pentecostal theology today, especially systematic versions of it, those are still very infantile theologies when you think about it. They're, they're very new, and they're in the infantile stages. And that doesn't mean they're not robust, as robust as it may be right now, especially because of global expansion and the rapid rate of its global expansion. Pentecostal theology is still an infantile theology. Its closest relative would be Wesleyan or, or Methodist theology. And that's still a young theology in many ways. But... Wesleyanism did give us the so-called Wesleyan quadrilateral. The Wesleyan quadrilateral is a four-sided approach to answering questions about Christian beliefs and practices. The four sides being scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Those are the four sides. And I've always loved that. That brings balance to the hermeneutic. Hermeneutic being a way of interpreting interpreting the the questions about Christian beliefs and practices, the four sides being scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. I think I have majored in reason and experience most of my life and minored in scripture and tradition. I'll just be honest. And that's funny because a lot of people know me as someone who knows a lot about the scripture and was deeply embedded in a religious, religious tradition. But truly... I have always majored on reason and experience and minored in scripture and tradition. Now, this doesn't mean I take the Bible serious. I'll just say that again. Uh, it, it is something to be taken serious. But to me, it's not more important than reason and experience. Now, that might be a personality thing, perhaps. I don't know. I've tried to fight that impulse throughout my life. But I'm just not wired that way. I have I had to make too many concessions to do so. And basically act like I'm blind when things don't actually add up. You know, it's one reason I went back to school. I went back to seminary. is because y'all shit just didn't add up. It quit adding up. And I was finding myself doing like scriptural acrobatics to make things fit within, you know, within the context of scripture and theology and my preaching and like all that. Uh, So it just didn't add up. And when you're embedded in it, you just kind of have to like, oh, well, yeah, you know, just ignore it or... uh, kind of just relegate it to wisdom you'll pick up later. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's something I reached a place in my life where I could no longer um, no longer do. Just couldn't, couldn't be embedded in something that emphasized Scripture and tradition as much as it did. What I would like to think um, is that the world needs people like me, people who are driven more by their own, uh, excuse me, uh, pe- yeah, people who are driven more by their own ability to think 
and who are open to feeling the depths of every experience because it's the way that we learn and navigate the world. That's what I'd like to think. I'd like to think y'all need us. (laughs) I also like to think that the world needs people of the book and of the tradition. What we don't need is for either of those groups to feel like they need to persuade the other group to see it their way. Instead, I would love to see what it would look like if each of these groups brings their own gifts to the table. What can we share from these different perspectives? What can we share? People of the book, people of the tradition, people of reason, and people of experience. What can we bring to the table if we would share the gifts that we have? What would it look like to go all in on your beliefs, be the best believer of your beliefs without feeling compelled to convince everyone else to believe the same? This, to me, seems to be the centerpiece of Jesus' life and ministry. The incarnation, y'all, think about this, the incarnation of God into flesh moves the locus of God's activity on the earth from what other people said about God, scripture and tradition, transmitted through religion. It moved the locus of God's activity on the earth from what people said about God to the lived experience of humans that God now shared in. Incarnation moves the locus of God's activity in the earth from the institution of the temple to the wilderness. Then it moves the locus of God's activity to Jesus, who hung out in the homes of the excluded and eventually gave him his spirit and claimed to unleash God's presence to the world, not just mythologically, but mystically. It was felt and experienced, not just taught and understood. As John said in 1 John That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have handled, the word of life. Now, I know these ideas make church leaders wring their hands, but this podcast isn't for them. It's for us. People in the wilderness who left their faith tradition, but not their spirituality. For those of us who really want to see what the good news might be about once it is unencumbered by religious doctrine, purity codes, behavior modification programs, and most of all, by the belief that the good news is a message only about the afterlife. Just some random thoughts this week of your fellow backslider. Until next time.